Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, from the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival up here in Canada. You can't beat it. Just get to sit down with some of the greatest artists in the world and sprinkle them out to you throughout the year. And if you ever get a chance to come up here for this festival, if you haven't already, please do. It's incredible. I also want to take the time to thank all of you again. I know I'm a broken record, but I really appreciate all the support and all the letters and all the texts and all the emails. It's just been incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And being next to John Heffron, I just have to share with you that this guy is the salt of the earth. This guy is one of the nicest human beings you will ever meet in the business, ever. And even though his aura depicts a guy who's kind and soft-spoken and generous and stress-free, he's a guy who wasn't always easy. But for some reason and some way possible, he stayed calm and stayed true to his dream of what he wanted to do. And from the moment he first started going on stage in college to now, after winning Last Comic Standing and doing so many different things and everything in between, you realize quite simply that it behooves you to not only pursue your goals with the force that you couldn't even imagine applying towards anything else in your life. But also, using the same forces 
to keep yourself in a good place and to keep yourself in a way where you always maintain great relationships with people and you always come across humble and kind. This guy is a 99 percenter when it comes to doing the right thing and being an amazing, amazing person. Yes, everyone has haters, I'm sure, including John Heffron. But what he does, how he does it, and the impact he has on his audiences is unprecedented. And anyone who's worked with John and anybody in an audience that sees John knows that he gives everything to his craft and he puts everything forward that he can in a positive way in the message of his comedy and in the way he deals with the people in his community around the stand-up world. And I'd say, honestly, if you can figure out a way to carve out the negative and boost forward the positive, I can guarantee you that you'll have the possibility of the kind of career that John Heffron has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Very excited today for my guest, John Heffern, a really great guy and an amazing talent. So without further ado, let's introduce him. John Heffern is an American stand-up comedian who was born in Detroit. But long before emerging victorious in the second season of NBC's hit reality competition Last Comic Standing, John first took the stage at the University of Michigan's Campus Main Street Comedy Showcase. Soon after, he found himself skipping night classes to pursue his passion and branching into FM radio, serving as Danny Bonaducci's wingman on Detroit's number one morning radio show. After that, he found himself with successful appearances on The Tonight Show, Chelsea Lately, HBO, FX, VH1, A&E, CMT, and The Late Late Show on CBS. Heffron's made an indelible mark on stand-up with two separate Comedy Central specials and a one-hour special on Netflix entitled Middle Class Funny. In the podcasting realm, Heffron has guested on some of the best shows out there, like the Joe Rogan Experience, Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank, and WTF with Mark Marin. He even launched his own podcast with his wife called The Critical 48. In addition to headlining clubs and appearing at festivals around the world, Heffron remains in high demand as a performer of events for numerous Fortune 500 companies, including Mercedes, Frito-Lay, Sonic, Johnson & Johnston, and the FBI, just to name a few. In addition to his four successful albums, 
Heffron has also written a best-selling advice book entitled I Come to You from the Future. Everything you'll need to know before you know it. You can catch John on his latest highly rated special with Brad Paisley on Netflix called Comedy Rodeo. Please welcome my guest today, a guy you're going to love. So wonderful, so kind, so generous, so talented. Please welcome John Heffron. Yay, me. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. By the way, I don't know why I just I talk like that. I, I used to do morning radio in Detroit. And uh, I'm not a radio guy, but for some reason, anytime anybody introduces me, I immediately start to thank you. Thank you for having me. So this is more me. This is thank you. Thank you for having me. There you go. Do you prefer Heffron or Heffron? Heffron is pronounced Heffron, but in the history of my life, no one's pronounced it correctly. And I think I did the only time that it got on my radar, right? Because everyone, John Heffron, like it just kind of people always did that is I did a, you know, like a Comedy Central what, what were the like half hour or, or something like one of those whatever they were and the announcer said ladies and gentlemen please welcome John Heffron and my dad saw the special and my dad called me and he goes how come you let people say your, your name wrong on every time I see you on TV and then I had a moment of like yeah you know what why yeah so Sherry O'Terry on Saturday Night Live. It's her first year. Don Pardo right. is the announcer has been doing it forever. And her name is technically pronounced when she grew up Sherry O'Terry. Right. But he was like, Sherry <laughs> O'Terry. Yeah. Pick your battles. She realized that it sounded better that yeah. way and she never had anything changed. Yeah. yeah. So I, I pick my battles. That's not one. So it's like aspirin, heffron. Yeah, Heffern, yeah. All right. Yeah, there we go. So the first thing I want to ask you is, from the moment I met you, you had this energy about you that was calming and relaxing. Like me as... Your aura. Okay, but not necessarily my fidgety persona. No, that's what you do to make yourself feel comfortable and to make other people feel like you're the underdog. Everybody has their winning formula. Your winning formula is the fidgety, aw shucks guy. When I met you, and to this day, I believe you're were married and in a relationship, or at least in a relationship at the time. Am I wrong or am I yeah, right? Yeah, so if we, I mean, if we first met each other at last, at comic, last comic era, which would have been 04-ish. Yeah, I was on I was season two, 04. So I was engaged all during last comic. Just got engaged. And again, I, I don't want to bounce all over the place if you had like more direction, but I, I found, I cleaned out a storage unit or was started to last week. And I found, I have books of calendars just, you know, in this one box. It was calendars from 1989 when I have like emceeing at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle, 50 bucks. And then I had like on this side that I made $325 you know that so i have all these calendars so then instead of cleaning out the storage unit i just start paging through because it's literally like a journal you're seeing like what you were doing and was the thing so i found 04 which was a big year for me so i pay i started paging through and it was it was the craziest thing i saw you know leading up to so december january february and then i i see uh got, got engaged and then a little bit early on it was Last comic audition, Nashville. And then a, a big circle around it. And then some dates. And then last comic, 
whatever, New York, circle around it, then, then some dates, then last comic, Vegas, the thing, and then I, then I got married, and then I paged through, and you see last comic finals. The only reason why I know this date, it wasn't like I had this tattooed on me, it's just because I just saw the book. Last comic finals, the 15th, and then I got married the third, like uh, a week earlier. I got married on, on July, like 23rd. So what I, I'm off, I, I think in my head, this story I'm telling you, maybe it was like, the but I had that all was in this calendar. And it was such a cool, because then also I looked at the money I made the two months before August, that August when it said last comic final. And then I turned the page and saw September. And it was such a weird, you know, I, I had this moment where I, where I was telling my wife, and again, I think maybe I completely sidetracked what even we we're talking about. I'm like, here, there, there's a value in life here where it shows your value as a, a person or what you do for a living or whatever. I, if you look at June versus September, the money, if the money that that went up, went up a billion times. Like it literally jumped crazy. Was I any less value in June making... 1500 for the entire month than I was in September when I made 150 grand it did, like did did John Heffern change no perception did just something people I that was it was almost like the Wizard of Oz that was always there so if it, so I was looking at that thing I'm like how can I turn this into a lesson for people where they go no your values there so quick on, I need to go. I just want to, I want to feel value. I want to feel that I, you, that's there. It's just a matter of then, okay, how do I convince people? Now, now I'm just going to be, you know, I'm going to be a used car salesman. Now my job is to convince you that, that this is here. So it was kind of like a cool, so 04 is when we met. So yeah. Did you have representation? Yeah. Pre-last comic I did, I had a tonight show. I had a half hour special, um, you know, not going way back, but, but yeah, I was, you know, I was working a lot and I was, you know, in my twenties, when I got out of college, I was doing, uh, I, I, I found this old book. This is the only reason why I know numbers is because I cleaned up my storage unit. I was doing 200 college dates a year from 22 to 30. So you had made lots of money because working the colleges, you make yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. But I mean, it was still, if you look at living age, what I was making in, you know, this was now I'm going to tell this was an era though, pre to show you how fast life goes. No, no Twitter, no way. The only way to get an audience was to perform and hope they remember you next time. There was zero keeping in contact with them. Like when I was on last comic in 04, there, there wasn't, there wasn't a uh, Facebook, there wasn't Twitter. There wasn't anything. I, MySpace was at the end. MySpace was just kind of ending. So our season, and you would know better than me, but was a pretty popular season. Nobody, not, like not on that show at that time, you had no way of grabbing those fans because you just did the show and then you hope that they remembered. There wasn't a way to go, hey, everybody, and then you get, now you have 10 million Twitter followers or a bunch of Instagram or your Facebook fan page. That wasn't there to grab, so... Yeah, so do you remember the other nine people in the top ten in two thousand four? Yeah, yeah. I had a could you tell our audience who they are? All right, so uh my season oh four, uh top five or or everybody who made it to the house. Again, my season of last and I feel weird telling you this, but my season last comic was in oh four, that's when reality 
TV show where people lived in a house was kind of peaking. Like that was still a thing. When I was producing with Peter Engel and the other great people involved, we went back and forth on those things in the network and they wanted the house. They lived in a house and I'm glad, like it's kind of a weird scenario, but I'm glad that I was part of a season that did that because now I don't want get this to be a last comic conversation, but it got people to know the personalities of the comics that have nothing to do with, with this, the stage. Which is 50% of reality television. And if you can't be great off camera and those interview segments, then you're not going to succeed in the reality. So show. I knew going in and my, you know, like you said, my aw shucks, whatever is not a ruse. I mean, I'm from Michigan. I've never been that. Hey everybody, I'm super aggressive. I'm super testosterone driven on stage. The problem with the world is you guys need to like, that's never been my, not here's how things should be fixed. Here's my act's always been, I don't understand. This. I always was very good at predicting who was going to win because <laughs> chances are the person who was going to win was the person who came across behind the scenes as the underdog. Yeah. So I kind of had a little bit of like, okay, what's the, you know, I made sure that that was a thing, you know, I never kind of, and if it worked out, it worked out. So on, on that season, uh, in the house was um, Kathleen Madigan, Alonzo Bowden, Gary Goldman, uh, Jay London, Bonnie McFarlane, um, Todd Glass, Ant. And what do you notice about those people that is not your characteristic? Hmm. The one thing about all those, those things that isn't mine? Let's go one by one. Let's just take Kathy Madigan. Serious, laser focused, very, very goal oriented, and very, very staid. That's her lane as a comic. Okay. Ant's character was flamboyantly gay character, over the top, always yapping, always talking, right. and that was his thing. Alonzo Bowden, another guy, very, very laser focused, serious. Pescatelli? Tammy Pescatelli. Huggable, lovable, underdog. Yes. Great story with her dad. I'll never forget this yeah. line. Her father has a heart attack. Literally during the show. During the show. Yeah. And she's crying and the cameras are on her, which again, even though it wasn't staged, obviously, that is what reality television is all yeah. about. Her mom calls, puts her on the phone with her dad, who's on his way to the hospital. He can talk a little bit. And he said to her on the phone, and it was on speakerphone, I believe, in life, honey, sometimes you're the nail and sometimes you're the hammer. Today, I was the nail. Oh, wow. Tonight, you stay there and you be the hammer. Wow. So Tammy Pescatelli <laughs> was huggable, yeah. lovable, not too loud, showed emotion and cried. Yeah. Family's yeah. a big thing. I put her on another side with you. You're in that lane. And I remember, too, I, I decided, Tammy, it, it's weird how TV and that portrays people like... Tammy literally, I've after, after her last comic, I did a bunch of shows with her. And she would mention she was Italian during her shows. I think, like, I mean, who knows exactly? Two times? So my, my Italian, and then 20, 30 minutes later, Italian. But, but on that show, just like if you're doing short sets and you mention it twice, people are like, oh my God, all she talks about is being Italian, which is not true. 
it's lit and plus that's her identity by the way she is italian of course you're gonna have it from so anyway so um who else uh goldman huggable lovable underdog and i'm gonna put him in the category with you and tammy now and i'm gonna analyze yeah, so that later yeah. okay let's keep going okay yeah so um who we go he goes kathy and jane london he was lovable and he was huggable and he was underdog but the guy dressed like he was homeless looked like he was homeless yeah his whole act was self-deprecating and i'm still gonna move him into your category yeah. of that so you got four people in that category who's next who's uh who had bonnie the world would say this woman is a really beautiful woman. It's the hardest thing as a comedian who's a woman to figure out the balance because if you dress a certain way and look a certain way, the men are not paying attention to your material. They're paying attention to your physical body. And the women, they turn you off because they might not feel as comfortable like they can be you. And normally a great comic who hits the mainstream, the reason why they hit the mainstream so strong is because if I could be so bold and get horribly graphic and technical, women want to fuck them and men want to be like them. And that's normally, if you look at the trajectory of some of the most stratospheric comics, I'm saying there's our exceptions like Larry yeah. the Cable Guy, right. but normally it's somebody who... You're just like, God, I wish I was that guy. Yeah. And girls are like, I wish I could be with that guy. Yeah. Bonnie wasn't necessarily probably as huggable and lovable, even though she was in the middle. But I'm going to put her in the other category right. and not yours because of the way that she presented herself. Probably the most alter like alternative and or edgy person on that show that's right because every everybody because again and i've had this debate or even especially when last comic was on or after everybody had an opinion about the show and i felt taken personally because i don't know if they're taking stabs at me like you know what i mean you can talk about the concept you can debate that but then some of them and at the end of the day now i don't mean to distract you the show was on nbc at eight o'clock and now i'm seeing this now at my shows now, it's 22-year-olds coming to my show with their parents going, we used to watch you together every Tuesday or whenever it was on. As a family, we would watch you guys, and we, you are our favorite. They're saying it to me. I'm sure other comics get there. You're a fan. And now, now the kids of age and the parents of age, and you kind of had this, this weird moment of going, that's weird that I'm like a memory for this family. And now they're coming. So that that was who was watching it, like 11 year old kids with their parents. So, you know, the comics, well, I'm going to do my material because, hey, you know, you have to you have to end up morphing into the show was for family. So let I just want to preface that. Who's next on the lineup? Todd Glass. OK, so Todd Glass, another guy who was out there and he was a very serious looking guy his character was a serious thing and he was all over the place but he didn't off camera provide the underdog thing he had that incredible intelligent wit off stage the incredible sense of humor mm -hmm. but sometimes almost too cool for the room and so i'm going to put him in the other category not the category that you win who's the last one uh it would be 
Corey Holcomb. Corey Holcomb, another guy. He did his whole set holding a drink all the time and randomly sipping this Cavassier or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> Had this kind of body language, this pacing, not pacing back and forth, but sort of davening like a rabbi <laughs> as he delivered the jokes. And again, his comedy was cool hip but he didn't concentrate on being this lovable wonderful guy he had some edgy stuff against girls and women and different right, right, things right. and so i'm gonna put him in the other category so who's left the three people who, in my opinion have a chance to win right. and even if people were finalists above that i'm just telling you right. my <laughs> philosophy when i was looking at the lineup because i'd always right. look at it and have these meetings with people and tell them my thoughts yeah. we would all tell them our thoughts yeah. And so you were a guy who was doing relationship humor, love, all the stuff that everybody in the world goes through and right. nothing offensive, nothing edgy, nothing alternative. Right. Essentially, what I looked at you as, and I said in one meeting, John Heffron is like a 95 mile an hour fastball right down the middle. <laughs> Strike every right. time. This is where I'm going to eliminate Tammy. She came across as, I'm the Italian, Italian, Italian. Okay, you're Italian, but remember, this country is a melting pot, and not everybody is endeared with the Italian culture. Not everybody cares about the Italian culture. Not everybody wants to rally around the Italian culture. Right. I eliminated her from winning in my head because I thought the material was too centric on being Italian and right. I thought that would isolate her. Gary Gullman, I didn't think had a chance of winning because, and I was representing him at the time, I wanted him to win, but my mind and my thought process went to, this is just too smart. This comedy is just so smart. It's like you have to think a lot of times really hard to get certain jokes, and when you get them, it's the greatest, but so beyond smart, and I think most of the country doesn't necessarily always want their comedy that smart, and so I thought for that reason, you were the only logical choice that could win the show. You were affable, kind, generous, funny, a traditional guy who went through, wasn't single, sleeping around, wanted a traditional life, wanted a traditional family. All the comedy was about that. And off stage, you were like, I'm not really comfortable and I'm right not now. really that confident. I don't know if I could win. I hope I win. <laughs> to me, there was no one of those 10 that had a chance to win that year except for you. I thought at that time, if you go to back then, I would say a lot of, you know, not say anything about anybody else and Kathleen and Alonzo I probably everyone else I could maybe consider peers and doing it the amount of time we've done it I don't know what my math was 10-15 years of comedy everyone was kind of similar uh, I, I would think but Alonzo and Kathleen those guys are writing machines here's here's my here's how I got through last comic here's my mentality uh, I, I do the show um, okay so Back up just here's my strategy. I'm in Florida. I get engaged a week before last comic. Um, yeah, before the auditions. I'm in Florida. I have a show in Michigan. I see last comic is auditioning in Nashville. 
And I was like, should I try to audition for that? Now, I did the pilot for Last Comic before. It was called Comic House. So it was me, Doug Stanhope, Carrie Louise. So I go, well, I'll audition for Last Comic just because. I, I, I'll stop in uh, Nashville, go in an audition. So I went there, and I was just like, well, I'll just audition and maybe I'll get on the audition show and that'll be one more TV credit. I'm literally thinking about at least get on to the thing. So I went in and there's a huge line. There's a, there's a line there. Me and Burt Kreischer, we skipped the line. And people, that's the whole thing. Whoa, who did you put? Listen, people, I've done, I, I, I got in a little argument with some new open micer who's like, the line's back there. And at this point, I've done stand-up for 15 years or whatever. I'm like, nah, that line's 15 years behind you. You know, relax. So me and Bert go in there and we just do the thing. And me and Bert have a little, little thing. I get on stage. I literally don't think I'm going to go because I'm like the guys who are booking it kind of. I'm like, well, they're probably not going to pat. And I did the pilot. If they would have wanted me to do this show, they would have had me done season one. Like that was my mentality. So I'm like, then no one here likes me. I'll just not not like me, but I'm like, there's no chance. I literally went on stage with like a leather jacket, which is not my personality. I had whatever jacket I had on. I'm like, I'm just going to blow this off. So you do that. And then after you did that, they pull you off to the side and you do uh, like a, a interview. So here's where sometimes your skill sets start the thing around. I already I did the pilot. I get that. But my little stint on de doing morning radios in Detroit. I learned how to, especially with, with Danny Bonaduce, how to be funny in quick increments. How to say something that are going to end up being a promo for the station or soundbite. I knew that going in. I did those interviews, went there, they asked me a question. I was watching other people's interviews. Uh, you know, so how are you? Deadpan face, blah, 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 blah. I did the interviews, I smiled, I was thing. I was, I, you projected for TV. There's a little bit of a hustle here. Da -da. So then I made it to the nighttime ones or, or whatever. And whatever happened, I was like, well, I made it. Uh, this is one TV show th that I made on. And then I got past all that stuff. And then I made it to New York. Um, I didn't think I'd get past New York. I literally, I'm like, well, at least I made it to New York. And I hope they show a funny clip of me. I never thought I would get past the first thing because I literally don't think like I'd see all these comics I'm like I'm not funnier than those guys so all that stuff happened I made it onto the show so like I'm, I'm skipping a lot of stuff so I made it onto the show 10 and the show was broken up when you made it through to the next step was 40 comedians and there were two big shows yeah it went of 20 comedians to, to 20. each that were narrowed down to five on each broadcast yeah. so on each yeah. different weeks so 100s to 40 to 20 to 10 so now i'm in the house now i know uh, you know i'm gonna go on the thing so then i i get there we, we start taping and i'm such a money guy i was and i alonzo like he always makes fun of me still that i was this on my head i'm like how much are we making if i make it till next week how much are we making like, I could care less about the show. I'm like, how much do you? I'm trying to figure out the SAG union things or whatever. And Alonzo was like, well, I, I'm off on this math, but 600 bucks. If you make it for, so one episode, I, again, wrong, could be two or three days. If you at least make it to the next episode, if they air it, you, you paid 600. I remember sitting there going, if I make it to, and this was an, I, I was like, I go, if I make it past this first round, 
I'm going to buy a massage chair that they sell at Chopper Image. <laughs> <laughs> I literally said that. I've been seeing this thing. It's, it's like, and I'm explaining this massage chair. So I make it to that uh, first round. And it was horrible, like making it to that first. Because what we had to do on the show, in, the, in I, I don't believe other seasons after us had to do this. You would have to do this thing where you'd go into a confession room and go, I'm funnier than, and you had to pick somebody that you, that you, you were funnier than. And that was horrible because I didn't think I'm funnier than anybody, but calling people out, that was an element of the show that I don't think other seasons had to do. And then that's where it became very gameplay in the sense where now you're, you're trying to figure out votes now you're being very political here i need four people to say they're funnier than this person and then that person will then have to go like it, it become this is where a game element of last comic is that people kind of don't understand when you're in the game you have to play the game and why you're there it's a little bit of, of hunger games well i'm just gonna sit here and go i'm not gonna shoot anybody i'm gonna die so you would do a thing that's the only thing i th that i didn't like that was hard about the show because at the time Leading back a little entire thing. I was really good friends with Bonnie McFarlane. We were just friends in LA. I moved to LA. She moved to LA. I think I gave her like, I had an old TV. We were just like friends. Starting to be friends. She was on the show. Everybody on Last Comic was like, we're all going to say we're funnier than Bonnie. Like everybody was having this thing. Having this, you know, the like side note thing. Whoever got picked, got to pick the person they want to go against. Right. So I was like, and then I remember, Aunt, like, okay, keep in mind, I was much younger then on that show than I am now. For some reason, if I was on a show like that now, I would handle things differently. But I'm going to chalk some of this up to just young naivete. Right. Yeah. I would not be this guy now. And I still, I hate that I did this still to this day, even though nobody cares about me. So I do whatever, go against everybody, even though Bonnie was a friend. And she basically threw her under the bus. Kind, you know what I mean? Like, kind of. Uh, you voted, I'm funnier than Bonnie, which I should never have said. And it still bugs me that I did this. So then she's mad at me and goes against me. She goes, I challenge you. And in my head, I was just like, don't. Don't challenge me. Don't, don't, don't. Right? So that happened. And she could challenge any one of the people that challenged her. Yeah. So, okay. So then I lost that friendship. She, she's, you know what I mean? I think she's, you know we kind of amends but i still i still feel in my gut even though it's a, a you know not a dumb show but it's just a dumb show that was on 14 years ago she was mad for a long time we've since like you know she said she came around because but, i've apologized but you still feel guilty yeah i feel it was a dumb move but but i mean but was it because then maybe i wouldn't want like who knows she had more votes to say i'm funnier than it didn't matter because she was still going to be challenged because she got the most votes. yeah but i challenge. didn't need to say it you know what I mean? Like I could have stood up. It's kind of, yeah. it's kind of like all these politicians. When you, when you, you know, he's being a tool of Republicans. Stand up and say you're doing it wrong, for for the sake of you, you're you're being wrong now. But anyway, so we did it, and then what ends up happening? I ended up performing. Um, I ended up, you know, performing. And then people got to see that set, and then for some reason, on that season, you had to perform a set while you're waiting to find out if you got kicked off the show. So my math on my season, like I see, I saw other people like Eliza, I think perform, I'm just guessing two times on, on all of last comic. She did two sets 
in one. Like then I'm like the old school guy. Back in my day, you had to do eight sets to win a show. Like you, I literally performed. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was performing, and, and and then people started challenging me. You know, because they thought for some reason, because they didn't realize I had, you know, all the college like didn't realize all the road work and stuff that I was I was a road guy so at the end of the day you know as far as toughness and figuring out the road guys always win those guys are always so then I then flipped it from being the oh gee golly like in my head I'm like everybody can challenge me I'm gonna just like it's, it's you know what I mean except for I knew Kathleen and Alonzo were the two people I'm like if I go against them but just how the math worked out I never had to but I ended up performing a lot all the way leading up to the finals. So people by that point knew my type of comedy, knew my thing, and then then what then whatever. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You mean? Tell me a time in your life other than that situation where you came home and you sat in the fetal position and you said, man, I really went against my character today. I don't visualize you as a guy who does that that often. Yeah, I think in my younger days, I think, you know, there might have been a show or like a show or two where I think I did a lot of, uh, you know, kamikazes before. You know, because I, I think I've always gone how I started comedy. I was always not, you know, in I have to stop defending myself for being n not an edgy comic. Like now, that's the thing. You know what I mean? Like that you, you see what's popular and you see, well, I'm edgy, man. You, you, you deal as a comic because you need to get up there. You need to say stuff that's going to push the, like, you know, and CNN has the history of comedy. You got to push the edge. You got you to do this and say things people are just afraid to say. Like that's a thing and that's like a belief. Or you can be a distraction. There's nothing wrong with being entertainment that's a distraction for people that have a lot of shit going on in their life. But you don't know how much weight somebody's carrying on on a daily basis of life, and then they get to a comedy show, and I'm gonna add more weight to that. They go, "Here's the problem with the you know what's the problem with America and the thing and da da da." I'm gonna say abortion because I can say it, and it's edgy, or you're a distraction for people that just need an hour away from all their shit in their life. So uh, earlier, I was always like felt guilty for having that attitude. 
you know, hey, my, my mom cut my hair weird. Now listen, if I do a late night set in at a comedy club in New York, am I gonna crush it? Do I get the back of the room comics to go? Do I get their respect? No, but I'm saying this in a nice way. Do I give a shit? No, because at the end of the day, they could be friends of mine, but when I'm 65, trying to make money or trying to retire or 50, none of those guys are writing a check to me. None of those guys, I'm not getting any, there's no, well, I got the respective comics savings account, you know, that they put in every month. So that's like the new. Well, I'm going to go toe to toe with you here. <laughs> I'm not saying any Does of those Chappelle guys. Does have the respect of comics? Yes. Who's wealthier than him in comedy? Mm. Does Chris Rock have the respect of his peers? Who's wealthier than him in comedy? Right. Wait, I'm not saying I don't want respect to peers, but I'm saying... No, but well, what you're saying at the end of the day, those comics, I'm the one who's going to be okay. And Right, but did they get that way from the, the comics or the audience? I'm just asking. A lot of times you think you take hits from comics because comics are edgier and I just do my thing and are they running to the back of the room that they would with an edgy comic? Well, they're not paying my salary. And at the end of the day, when it comes time, I'm doing what I do to make money and I'm doing okay. And, and what I'm saying is is that there are comics out there who do garner respect, who do edgy stuff, who do make a lot of money. But I'm saying from my lane that I've been in, it's I don't know how to do that. And so And why should you? I'm not like these cool the cool hip guys in the room because I don't do but what that, but that's not your lane. Right. That's that's what I'm saying. And even Chappelle would sit here right now and be in this conversation if you were here and he'd say, Choose your lane. Yeah. Find your lane yeah. and roll with the lane. Look, Caratop found his lane. There is no one more maligned in comedy probably than Carrot Top. Nobody who people love to take shots at more than Carrot Top. What they forget is, and this is what probably bothers me most about comedy, Carrot Top is probably one of the most original comedians in the history of comedy. There is no one who does what he does no one who creates things on a daily basis of what he does, but he gets maligned because for some reason in the comedy business, which has been passed down for generations, yeah. if you're using props, people feel that you're lesser than the people who just stand and make the mic. Great. And in television, Lucille Ball would tell you in many interviews, if you study the history of comedy, that she would say, I am nothing without my props. Right. And I can't do comedy without my props and my show wouldn't be successful without the things that I use to accentuate the comedy. But the way the world of comedy works, you're more respected when you stand there and the jokes come from your mind through your mouth to the mic. It's, I had this great, like, this conversation with a kid. He lived, I, you know, I say kid, 20-something comic. And he made a Carrot Top reference. And I was just sitting back and I go... Do you know Scott? He's like, no, blah, blah, blah. I go, then, then why would you? Well, you know, pop guy. Da, da, da. And go, he says Scott because uh, Caratop's yeah. real name is Scott Thompson. So I go, when I was 18 years old, 19, I went to MTV Spring Break, had a MTV Spring Break comedy thing. 
And somehow we won a contest. I don't remember even how that went, but we were there. They brought Caratops trunks on stage and however many people there, 10,000 people started cheering like crazy. Um, and then I got in a debate with him. I go, prop, I go, I've seen you pull out your phone twice during your bit about uh, I got a text from my girlfriend and you pull out your phone. I go, and that's not a prop? Well, no, I mean, reading it to me, a guy who doesn't use stuff, you're using a prop. That's a prop. Pulling out your phone is a thing and you show it and then you go, hey, here's a message my dad left and then you play it. That to me is a prop. Like, and it's weird how it's just people's perception. Uh, Dimitri Martin does the, the, draws the pictures and he shows like the that to me is a prop like like then i get mad going how come this guy can use a prop and then that's not hip and trendy and this guy does a thing and you're like that's genius and it they're all props i feel they respect dimitri martin more than Caratop because dimitri martin's roots started as a straight stand-up comic with the intellectual kind of comedy stood there planted his feet in front of the mic and did it and he got success doing it that way and then he decided to change his lane and try to create a different kind of comedy with a different kind of formula and he was able to succeed with that as well whereas scott thompson caratop i think they feel he just uses the one lane and the props and whatever but the point i'm trying to make is that this guy's a true original look there's ed sheeran's and there's aerosmith's how long has he been doing it and doing it consistently, are we going on 25 years? And probably <laughs> one of the most financially successful companies in the world. One of the things that I admire and respect about you so much is the fact that you seem to seamlessly balance the relationship with your wife and your family and comedy. And normally things go off the rails when you get married and I'm not saying that as an indictment for every single person in comedy that gets married I don't want to say that but things get in the way and sometimes rants from significant others happen in front of the people (laughs) that are the decision makers and it gets ugly but for you when I am around you it almost feels like that doesn't exist. Could I be wrong? <laughs> no, I mean, well, I know it with my wife, because um, I met her, all I did was stand up, so there wasn't, oh, she knew what I do, but when we've, I've done corporate events with her, she knows when we go that it's a work thing. So we don't even use the terms on vacation or on things. Like I'm being paid, we're being paid to fly to here. They own me from from that day to whatever. If we fit in stuff, throughout the day that's a bonus but at the end of the day they get first right of refusal to my my time when i'm there and i'm actually in our relationship my wife uh works for mercedes and uh is traveling every week you know doing drive academies or whatever i'm the the female in the relationship my wife will go and be four or five days where she won't text or call or what I'll get, like, she'll text, but she's do- on track 14 hours a day. And then I'm the girl going, well, blah, blah, blah. And we just have, like, a really good trust in not to be in each other's stuff. When she's working, she knows that she's in that work mode. And then I'm when, when I'm performing, I'm in that work. Th- that 
that way. So I'm very positive. I'm not like I, I get angry and stuff, but I had somebody come up to me after my show and I do a lot of relationship stuff. Um and she came up, she goes, you, you talk about your wife a lot during the show or relationship. And I thought she was about to say, say something like kind of crappy. She's like, but can I make an opinion? I'm like, yeah, okay. She goes, here's what I like about you. She goes, you celebrate life when you're on stage. She goes, I see a lot of comics who are up there just talking about how life is horrible. And here's, here's the, all the negative. She goes, even though you're talking about your wife and the arguments you have, she goes, you're celebrating just be, and I've never had that. You know, it's not like if you're listening to me and you've never heard of me on your podcast, I'm not like a Christian comic. I don't, I'm not like, you know what I mean? I'm not like that. I've never heard that me referred to as like, she goes like, no, you don't come from a negative place. Because I see a lot, you know, comics talk about relationships. Another thing you women do, it comes from like that point of view. And you're like, whoa. So, I don't know, is it interesting? So, I, I try to stay grounded. So, even when, and I don't know how much of that is corporate taught in a sense again not to keep like this weird little radio stint that i only did for five or six years you know it's focus groups i had to sit in where they would take conversations and i'd have to sit there and watch 40 women in in a room turning dials when we're having conversations about you know oh so me and my girlfriend went to this concert and they would analyze so that as much as i'm a comic and i should talk free i think a lot about wording and stuff going okay like how do i say this where you know i'm again i don't say stuff just to be edgy so how can i say this or reword it differently that that um you know i'm not stepping on toes that way but that's again now i'm defending myself that's not my move is to step on toes that's not that's not what i do hey everybody i am really really excited we have a new sponsor aqua true this is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. All right, I want to go way, way, way back. Yeah. Take me to where you grew up, what the socioeconomic dynamic was, right, so, what your family was like, and then what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? So uh, I grew up in uh, South Lyme, Michigan. Uh, was I, th I graduated with a 100 and... Maybe a hundred and like ninety, under two hundred kids were in my graduating class. 
Uh, my dad was a truck driver, worked at UPS. Pretty much everybody in the town that I grew up in owned horse farms. It was very blue collar, very farm, farm community. So, uh, and then I worked at a grocery store all through high school. And that, it, uh, or since I was 14. So I worked from 14 to like 21. And with the off state, with the microphones in the back of the grocery store, when you can make announcements over the PA is where I start. Like I literally would try to do funny announcements that we need carts or I would say stuff to see if anybody would hear me trying to just be funny over the intercom system. Um, so that was that. I was voted class clown, most talkative, most likely to become Pat Sajak. That was actually a, a thing you could get voted for in my high school. Um, uh, most likely to become a comedian. Just because I was such a little kid in high school, I knew I wasn't going to get the girls via brawn. So I, in, I learned how to be funny enough to not get suspended or kicked out of class, um, but also be funny enough where I can kind of con the teachers into, um, you know, helping me do my homework or pretty much doing it for me. Or, uh, you know, that was my whole thing. I want to be funny, but not a, a pain in the ass. Um, and as far as stand-up, you know, it's kind of the story that everybody has where my mom bought me like Carlin cassettes and Eddie Murphy's first album that had the flower in it. How old were you when she bought you Eddie Murphy's first album? Probably 12, 13, if the math is right on that. She let you listen to oh, yeah, Eddie 100%. Murphy when you were 12. I remember 12. watching, and I would ask her about like bits I wouldn't know. And my mom would literally, uh, who's, I think Steve Martin had a thing where he said something about, I don't know if he was talking about cats, but he was like pussy. Like he would say a thing and I would ask my mom and she would just be like, oh, that's a, that's a thing. Yeah, that's kind of the lifestyle I, I had with, I, and I saw a lot of Vegas shows. My mom, my mom was like in, into dating, uh, <laughs> very big Michigan mobsters. Where was your dad? Uh, my, my parents were divorced when I was like one. So I lived with my dad and my stepmom. I, I would every two or three days growing up, I would have to be, I would pack and I would go to somebody else's house. So so as a kid, I hated it because I would always like hunker down on my mom's. I know I'd have a one full day. And then the next day I had to kind of get all my stuff together because then I was going to my dad's and I'd be at my dad's and then I'd have one full day. And the next day I'd have to kind of get my stuff together. And then I'd be at my mom's. And I had a moment last week where I was, I was flying and I'm packing and my, uh, no, I was flying, landed, did a corporate show. Next day, started packing up my stuff. And I went, at least I didn't mimic my adult life to be exactly how it was when I was a kid. <laughs> that I'm literally in motion, never not getting ready to go someplace else. And I remember my, my mom passed away years ago, but I remember she said something that just, you know, sometimes people say something and they don't mean to be shitty. You know, they're just being honest and it just like, for whatever reason, just sticks with you. I remember once I told my mom, like, mom, I'm here. You know, she's like, you got to visit more. And I was at her house. Like, I'm here. And she goes, even when you're here, you're not here. And I'm like, oh, and like last week I'm traveling. I'm like, God dang it. Like, did I, did I purposely, was this, is this all my entire career a ruse just so I don't have to be in one place and I have an excuse that I have to like, it, it's weird. So. Um, where were we at on, on this? So Carlin, so I would go, my mom dated all these, the mafia guys, 
Well, how do you know they were in the mob when you were, were. a young kid? We have a, a book of, of like famous Michigan mobsters, like you know, and I paged to it, and I like knew all the guys. They were they were mob guys. So when you look back, what was it about your mom that was attracted? To these men was it the nice suits the money the whining dining the the bad boy image what was it that attracted her to all these people in your opinion my mom looking back because i'm cleaning out a storage unit that's mostly her stuff <laughs> you know i'm going through all these boxes with all these gucci bags and you know just this stuff like that I, i'm guessing my mom's probably looking down at me saying i'm wrong but i'm guessing the money and just the being taken care of thing I would guess I could be 100% wrong with that. Um, but, but here's my little scam that I ran. This, so we would go to racetracks and the, you know, it'd be the all in the room gambling. And I remember the guys would give me like 100 bucks. Like I remember getting full $100 bills because you, never, you didn't see a $100 bill when you're 11. Somebody hand you. So they would go, go gamble, go bet on some horses. And I would just leave. Now, looking back, I, I, you know, as an adult, maybe they were trying to get rid of me. You know, I don't know what debauchery was happening. <laughs> you know, and like it was the 70s, 80s. I don't know what drugs was going on. Stuff like that. So I would go. And this is back apparently when it was legal for an 11-year-old to walk up to a counter at a racetrack and make bets. Like nobody was like, right? So I go, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm betting for Mr. Velope. Once that I, and then I, I would go back and they would always go, all these, these men. Like keep in mind whatever that was. They're in suits. They're in, and they go, how much did you lose? What'd you, what'd you bet? And I go, I bet it all. And they're like, no, you're supposed to just bet like a dollar, two dollars. Hey, you know, Marilyn, he bet, he gambles like you. Hey, you know, it was a whole thing. So then we get in the car and my mom would always, and this happened so many times, my mom would look at me and she'd just stare at me and I would not make eye contact with her. And she'd always go, how much money do you have in your pocket right now? I go, I bet it all. So how, how much money? Show, show me your pockets. And I pull out. $98, you know, every time someone gave me a hundred, I would go bet a, a dollar or two. And then I get the change, I put the change in my pocket and then I would just, just bet and tell everybody I lost it. So my mom would always go, give me that money. This you have, and I, and she would take it and she would take half of it and she'd give me the rest and then we go to Toys R Us and I buy Star Wars action figures. My mom it's in, uh, my stepmom and my dad didn't let me bring toys from my mom's house home like it was a dumb like i'm totally against that like I'm, i don't understand why but they're like nah don't blah 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 then i would take those stars figures that i just bought with mob money and i would take them to my body right <laughs> and i would go home and i would now bring contraband from from this the you know the star wars guys to my house and i had a whole stash of contraband there see that's what it is those clean comics us clean comics, where the ones were deep down, stuff is like revealed a little. Yeah, yeah. So um, that that's my mob story. So wow. But we go to Vegas, and I would see it. I don't. I just remember seeing comedians back then. Like I was too young. Like to be honest, I was like, oh, we saw. I don't have that memory of who they were. I just remember seeing everybody kind of laughing and stuff like that, and then. Then we'd have to leave Vegas because my mom would be like, I have a marker out on me. We have to leave. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Uh, and then we'd come home. So Tell me the most horrible thing you ever witnessed or overheard one of these mobsters say. Oh, or, or her. I saw, like, 
almost like Bronx Tale. Have you seen the the movie Bronx Tale? I just wasn't like that close, but I saw like dudes get, like I remember being at some blind pig as a little kid and looking down and seeing some dude just getting and I still mimic like I remember I don't remember any of the guys names but how they stand on stage and this thing they do with their their, their hand where they point like they do like so imagine having really cool cufflinks and rings how you just your hands and when you're making a point you take your finger and you, you know what I mean that guy thinks he's gonna come in they, they, they do that really dramatic hand point if you watch any whatever tapes exist of me doing stand-up, the first thing, I do that so much during my act because I'm so not confident. Like, I kind of would have this persona on stage where I get a little bit fingers pointing down. Where I get, because I'm like... You have the controllable Josh Blue hand. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect example. Where I'm like, this is me owning it because this is what... And looking back now, it's kind of silly. For those of you who don't know, Josh yeah. Blue won last comic standing. He had cerebral palsy in one of his arms, but that happened to him, not from wanting to do it. <laughs> so then, to, to, so then, I was just a big fan of stand up. Went to a comedy club that you could be eighteen to get in, and the, we sat in the waitress section, and she kept coming up saying, "Are you guys going to do open mics?" And she was so hot, we we're all like, "Yeah, probably going to do open mics." So she came back and said, "I signed up all you guys to do a show." Uh, next Tuesday um, So then all of us Because we didn't want to look dumb in front of this this waitress All did sets on Tuesday That waitress was Lucy Liu um, The actress The waitress was Lucy yeah, Liu yeah, yeah. Where was that? In uh, uh, Ann Arbor Comedy Showcase It was called the Main Street Comedy Showcase in Ann Arbor But that was Lucy Liu um, Did it and then she quit like two weeks later But at that point I did two open mic So I've never met Lucy Liu since then but she kind of is responsible for my entire existence. I mean, who knows? It's like the butterfly effect. Who knows what else would a thing? But Why haven't you reached out to her? I've told that story before, and I've had people tweet her, and she's never responded. So part of me doesn't even... Like, I think we might even have the same agent. I don't know. Like, what if I meet her, and she's, like, horrible to me? Like, I almost don't... <laughs> I, it's almost I don't want any other memory than, than what I have. I don't want to wreck it. So what was your first big break in show business? What happened? Going back, I would probably think, well, headlining Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. I, I, I would probably say that was the first taste of, okay. I started doing comedy when I was 19. I was such a good MC. I was MCing every week. Oh. For four years of, of college, I emceed just about every week. So then that's why when I got out of college, I was, I had chops. Um, and what was your first big oh, break? Oh, then I did a Evening at the Improv. Bill Maher was the host. I was, I was, man, I'm wearing like brown shirt with black boot. Like I just see it and it's just like, but I was, I was 20, 20, 21. I had a, a buddy who was friends with the guy who booked it, Ross Mark, and my buddy Eric called him and Ross booked me on that thing sight unseen. I flew out to from Michigan to LA. I had a TV credit now. How did it go? It was it was, it was like I, I, it went well, but I mean I don't remember the set. But that edited on tape probably was the thing that got you into the college showcases. That because I had TV and nobody like this was back. You know there was a time where if you had one evening at the Improv, you were a headliner at a comedy club. That was the only credit you needed. That was it. And you actually, people are like, whoa, he's been, he has a TV credit. Like that was, I missed that whole era. 
one of the things that I've always thought about you and I've never quite understood, and it's pretty confronting, probably personal, but everybody has a lot inside them, a lot of gifts inside them. And you proved that you had a great gift for radio. You were on it for probably five years. Anybody will tell you, if you can stay on radio in five years and survive, that's a huge, huge accomplishment. You had a great, great talent as a host. You hosted for four years. You went on to do your regular sets and stand-up, crushed it. You went on television and you were able to prove that you could tell a story in an interview and panel on a late night talk show and panel on things. You have that talent. But what always surprised me is that you never seemed to spend the amount of time on making sure you were an accomplished and practiced actor. Right and put the effort that you put into all those other things. Always thought that you were a guy who could seamlessly walk onto a soundstage and act in a sitcom. And I just never understood that. And I wanted you to explain to me why that is. Why I think that. So I've had a, I don't even know how many, you know, a bunch of TV deals throughout throughout my life. Like, you know, but I had with, with almost every network that you could. I had, you know, the John Heff, and this, again, this was a different era when it was very, you're a comic, you did a five-minute bit, and they're going to give you a sitcom about your five-minute bit. You know, that era's gone. Every one of those deals, I, I had hor- horrible experiences with leading up to that. Um, the writers, like, you know, the two writers that wrote on one of the most successful sitcoms you could ever do. I remember I got a deal with, like, you know, I'm gonna. These networks are gonna be wrong because I don't remember. Let's just say CBS, right? So I, I meet huge deal with CBS. Meet with these writers. I talk to them for th- these particular people three minutes, four minutes. I'm literally at Starbucks. Okay, so you're newly married. Da da da. They leave. No, no, nothing from my act. Nothing from whatever. We get a script. Something happens there. I get another deal kind of similar to that or whatever. So I never got to that phase where that would even happen. I would get deals and then I would get these crazy holding things where I never went out on anything. And for my management from from the get-go, I've always been, I need to be, can I be somebody's friend? Can I be like the friend, the dumb friend, please, please? Can I be the friend? No, you got to be the, you're the guy, you're the guy, you're the guy. I'm like, I don't want to be the guy. Please let me just be the first. Like, I've always had that in my head going, I never want to be the guy. That's not a thing. And then you get those deals and then you start getting, you know, I do so many corporate events that I make, you know, network money doing corporate events. So you, the, there is a part of it on my side where you kind of get lost in the money. We're like, oh, I'm doing all this here. And then you do let that stuff lapse because you have that. And then at the end game, whether that was a good play or not, but so I don't know if that answered your question. So then you just go, well, now you've aged out of certain things or, um, you know, you're no longer the, you know, the stuff I came really close to, they were always like, mm, you're too old looking to be a, you're, you don't look old enough to be a dad. I probably heard that on like, I would always be when you network test for stuff, I'd always be like the second guy. And for some whatever reason, I could never, t- like I would hit the rim, but I didn't know how to get over that thing. And that could have been 
maybe finding a, a you know different acting coach or figuring out what that thing or deep down at at those times maybe i just i was like not into it you know i probably think like subconsciously it was just the you know i don't do i want to act and be the guy you know subconsciously and if you make that decision subconsciously then you're like i'm gonna make sure i don't get this I'm gonna, you know what I mean? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something just so because you have your agents and your managers. I'm not saying that that's me now, or whatever. But I'm, if you go back to you know John Heffern in his 20s, when I was super young looking, and you know, and that was the thing. But then the act. So yeah. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called "I Killed JFK." It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of somebody, and you can tell me a word, a sentence, a short story, whatever you want to tell. Perfect. Chelsea Handler. Cut off. I.e., I used to do a show all the time, and then suddenly it stopped, and nobody could get a reason why. And How many times did you do the show? I, I was on, like, I was on a lot, and then, or, you know, decent, and then it just... And then I just assumed because that show was set up for you just lob, you know, make her look funny. And I think I, w I was doing it wrong. Well, look, if Chelsea Handler were here, she'd tell you if you didn't do well the first time you went on, you wouldn't be on the second time. Yeah. No, I was on way more than that. And then suddenly did you look at it and say, OK, let me look at my first one. Let me look at my second one. And let me look at the last one I did. And let's compare and see if there's anything I can notice about anything. No. Did I'm, you ever call her up and say, how come you don't put me on anymore? I, I didn't know her well enough to do that, but I would do the thing. I just assumed, OK, I'm not I don't know how to. Yeah. So. Mark Marin. Um, when I did his podcast, I felt, you know, when I was talking earlier about how I, I don't feel like I'm in the cool guy group. I kind of felt. That made me happy doing his podcast. At least I felt like, okay, I get to do stuff that all, the cool stuff that all these other comics do. Yeah. David Hasselhoff. Uh, big Knight Rider fan. I gotta say, you gotta, I gotta love not Knight Rider. I mean, everyone, you say David Hasselhoff, I, I take the image of him eating a hamburger on the stairs. I wish I didn't have that immediate image in my head, but you know, Kit, Kit and him were a big part of me growing up. Brad Paisley. Brad Paisley. Um, I, obviously a huge fan since I'm doing a, a Netflix special with him. Why but, don't you talk about the Netflix special with Brad Paisley and why is Brad Paisley <laughs> doing a, a Netflix yeah. comedy special with you? Uh, Brad Paisley is a huge like comedy fan. He's got like, he is, you know, he's really into Star Wars and he's just like, he has a lot of comics open for him. So he did this show for Netflix where he hosts, he's, he's just hosting, He's seeing some of his stuff from his new album, and it's me, Sarah Tiana, Nate Bogazzi, John Reap, and Mikey uh, Winfield. And everybody is blue collar in the sense of their uh, style, but they're not, hey, we're Southern and we have 
you know, washers on our front porch. Like, they're not like that. You know, I'm very Midwest blue collar. Everyone's every the show crushes. Like so, it's Paisley sings su- stuff from his new album. We shot it a couple months ago, so it was like new, new. Um, and everyone comes out and does like ten minutes, twelve minutes. I don't know how they edit it. Who were the people that had to follow? the musical numbers we all did how was it possible to do well following musical numbers well here here's to be honest with you the, the first show we shot a couple first show people didn't know I, I don't think they knew why they were there they just wanted to see brad paisley so how they kind of set up and i don't know how they're gonna edit it brad kind of starts singing a song that he think go, goes along with the with the comic and then you walk out and kind of interrupt him singing Right, so is the kind of the the concept. First crowd, we're like, why is this Nate kid? Why did he just walk out? Why Brad singing? Why would you interrupt him like that? So it was a weird thing, and then you had to stop. So the, no warm up comic in the beginning nobody. said, "Listen, this is how the show is going to go. Brad's going to do a number, not the and first before show. he finishes." One of the comics going to walk out during the song, and then they're going to do their act. Then you're going to not the first show. Not the first show. The second show, Andrew Dorfman went out there and did that exact thing. These are five comics. You might not know them. Brad's a big fan of theirs. He's He wants to expose them to you guys. And then this, everybody just walked out and just kunk, just out of the parks. Just kunk. Um, and it's kind of like a weird mixture. And I, I see when people said Brad Paisley has a comedy special, people are like, why does he have one? But if you figure, we all do 10 minutes. There's five of us on Ensemble. I happen to think with any comedy specials now, I've seen a lot of hour specials lately, and I got to say, boy, you could whittle a lot of those down to 20 minutes, <laughs> right? Like, I'm just I'm just literally, I, I think it's the 80s and people are cranking out these hours where you just go, man, you guys are just like, you're just printing money, but it's not. So that 10 minutes, I think is equivalent of what it would be like to be on a Tonight Show, what, what the math, 10 years ago? You know, like when you do a late, like you could do a late night show now, a late night set on TV, two weeks in a row, every night, come out and do a set. The following week, you go to perform wherever you're performing, you haven't sold an extra ticket. You haven't, there's not, you haven't moved that dial at all. I think a show like this with Paisley, a lot of people are going to watch it that are fans of him. They're going to go through the comics. Now, listen, they're going to look at the five and go, I thought this guy was funnier or Sarah was funnier. Then that's great, but it's a funnel. It's just a numbers game now. You have millions of people watch that, and then they funnel through. Reap gets some. Now we're playing Pinko. The power bar goes to one. Sarah gets a few. I get a thing. I just want one or two of the ping pong balls to go down into the John Heffern thing. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, um, crazy fan. I wish I had the allegiance. I was talking today how many acts Joe Rogan has created. What does that mean? You wish you had the allegiance? He's he's got a fan base that is just oh, loyal. Got it. He okay. could start an army. He could literally <laughs> start a small community and go. I need you guys all to take spears and we're going to take over a small city in Virginia. <laughs> he could, you know, he could. He ru- could run for office. I've always been impressed with Joe because he's one of those comics where. He's done, I don't think there's one thing in his career he's done that he didn't just go, I'm, I'm doing it this way. And everybody else can fall in line. He's just like, you know, some guys just get, it's not luck because he works hard at, but with his pot, he's just always done everything on his terms. And he's, he's, a, he's a star creator. Like you look at the guys that are under the Rogan umbrella that he, not even intentionally, he just through association and they all have the power to then 
move on to themselves. So I'm not saying he just, but the Ari Shafirs, the, the Joey Diaz, all those guys who are crazy, like all are from that camp and from, you know, that country. And it's pretty awesome. Joe Rogan <laughs> is the Lorne Michaels of podcasting comedians who broken through to be stars. He's the only person that I know of that has created that cast of characters right. that he's launched. And the only difference is between anything. There's so few things that you can count that launch people. There's so, so few things. You could probably count maybe less than five. He's genuinely happy and excited for them he doesn't ask for anything, anything in, return. in return he's also fiercely loyal to the craft of stand-up and yeah. when he feels something isn't the way it's supposed to go he will speak his mind and whether you agree with him or not his opinion is very powerful and it matters and he's an advocate for comedy and he's an advocate for launching people who may be the general population didn't take notice of but he endorses them and then they do and then they have to do their own thing it's like what my mom said to me when i was younger she said barry you always have to wear original unique shoes out because if you do women will talk to you <laughs> and then after that it's up to you <laughs> and it's the same with joe it's like hey i'm gonna support you i'm gonna put you out there and you're gonna launch your own thing but after that it's up to you. Yeah. I mean, I was on Joe's podcast, like Joe Rogan Experience number four or five, you know, when he was, you were on we, the fourth one, we were literally, he had his laptop on a table and we were like all leaning into the laptop talking, you, you know, maybe a mic, but I remember us having to sit super close and, and I haven't been on in a while, but I still get people to my, will show up at my show saying they heard you I heard you on Rogan's podcast and you're right that's the biggest thing he has all that where he could be then suddenly the business guy with like you're on my podcast network I want that da, 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 da. I'm gonna do that like he doesn't he's just like I'm doing this because I love I want to talk to people about whatever and yeah so that's it Julia Roberts and Drew Barrymore I will say Julia Roberts uh, those two uh, because um, I created a game uh, in the 90s. I created a card game for women to play at bachelorette parties. Drew Barrymore and Julia Roberts ended up playing this card game in random, and it made it into Glamour Magazine, In Style, Newsweek, all those magazines. And I'm 20-something years old, and I have a card deck. It was, a, it was a called the That Guy game. You went to a bar, and you pass out cards, and you had to find the real-life version of the guys you the hand you were dealt. So you had to find the sweaty dancer guy, too old to be there guy, big gut, skinny legs guy. So bachelor party started playing this, but so we created this game. We had it in our apartment. We sold that first year, a hundred thousand games from our apartment, putting them. This is like, we didn't, there wasn't even drop shipping services back then. Like to take a credit card online was a crazy, it was a, it was a hard process. Then we'd go to appeal. We'd have to take, boxes and box like we were just and then we just got we never followed through with it as a business because we were just like we're comics what are we doing like like that would have been like sometimes i think about that that because we sold so much we had a we have a patent on it we got ripped off by huge game companies like milton like not milton bradley but 
those type or or, or uh, one big publishers where we just didn't have the money to their basic were like yeah are you gonna sue us because we're a crazy corporation and you're two guys living in Beverly Hills in a one bedroom apartment so yeah Courtney Cox Courtney Cox um I did uh, her TV show um see I backed it yeah I was I played host host number one. <laughs> And I almost got in a fight. I was doing the show, and they were like, "You're you're hosting like a like an Oscars awards or whatever." And I'm up there, and I'm like talking, and the director just goes, "Do some of your bit," and then I had to say something. And as I'm doing, like my bit, there's an extra. He's like sitting. Who? Like, I, I know the guy's face. He's now an actor, but I don't know his name. But he's like sitting at the table, and as I'm talking, he's moving his head almost like condescendingly, and like um, why I'm why I'm talking. And he's looking right at me. So we get done with the thing and we're outside. There's like crash services and all the extra thing. And he's getting, uh, you know, eating some Twizzlers or something. And here's my Detroit, uh, you know, my Michigan farm kid. I just leaned into him. I go, were you mocking me? And whatever. And then he goes, what? I go, yeah, I saw you. You're going, he goes, I'm saying, I go, when we go back in there again, if, if we, I go, I'm a day player on this. If we, you do that one more time. I'm jumping off the stage and we'll beat your ass. If, like I literally tried. And, and then we did the thing and I went on, went, on, went on stage and I did my whole scene staring at him. And he was just the whole time he was mad dogging me, but he he didn't do the thing. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> See, so that's why I'm like, acting's horrible. I get my first acting gig and I gotta fight some guy. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> last one, Jay Leno. Uh, Jay Leno. I did his show a bunch of times and my Jay Leno story is, I think when I won last comic, if I remember correctly, you did, you won last comic that night, right? And then the next day you did the tonight show less than 15 hours later. So I had to get up at, so 4am, I remember doing maybe a million radio stations from 4am to 2pm. I remember this day. Then I had to shower and get ready, drive the t to the Tonight Show to do the Tonight Show. And to set that, I'm like, I don't even know what, what am I going to do. Like, you didn't run, set, whatever. So I get there. I have a suit. I'm all whatever. I, I get makeup on and stuff. And then I look down and I'm like, I don't have any shoes. I literally had flip-flops because I went to the thing. I wouldn't jean the flip-flops. I go, I forgot my shoes. So the, the, uh, the uh, clothing person was running around and he went into, Jay Leno comes in my room. He goes, do you forget your shoes? I'm like, yeah. So he brings me his shoes and they're these weird pointy, like, like, I'm like, I'm not wearing those. Those look horrendous. But how do you tell the host? You're yeah. I'm like, those are from him. Plus they were like 12s and I'm like a 10 and a half. So then the wardrobe person went to whatever soap operas that they have on, on set. And I wore this. Some soap opera guy's shoes. But the whole time I'm doing my set, I'm like, I'm not wearing my shoes. Like, it's, it throws you off. Like, if I give you, you know, like when I perform, I have game day shirts. The shirts that I've wore a hundred times. I don't ever do a TV show or a big show in a brand new shirt. That throws me off. That's not like, this is not, this is, you know, yeah, I'm not wearing an opening day shirt on the, like the last of the, yeah, it, it throws me off. I don't know. So your proudest moment in show business. Proudest moment, um, I would probably say, you know, not that I'm hanging everything on the last I had, that was a pretty good feeling. You know, when, when they announced your name and the balloons it. fell. And, 
you, you know, and, and I had a moment. Yeah. It was the proudest moment, then immediately the most, uh, I, I don't even know the word. I'm like, bah, bah, bah. And I thought I was going to get to say something. And then immediately, Jay Moore plug, starts plugging season three that happened two hours later than season two. It literally happened like two hours later. And I just walked, like I thought I was going to go, I get to say thank you, whatever. And I see, you know, you see you're shooting a TV show. I see Jay, Jay's like talking like, hey, we're going to da da. I remember I leaned into the camera and all I said, and this actually made Detroit like newspapers. I just leaned in and I whipped mouth. I go, thank you, Michigan. Because like the first thing I wore a Detroit shirt. So I, that's all I said. Yeah, I just looked in and said, thank you, Michigan. That made the thing. Yeah. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. My biggest disappointment in show business. There's been times where I was up for big things and I, you know, I didn't get it or, um, you know, you're, you're trying to, they just passed on you. You get passed a lot on a lot of things. And every time I would get passed, instead of overly taking it personal, which sometimes you do, you go, okay, why? What was the thing? What, you know, what could have I just, as a comic, or what could have I done better? Some of it's just out of control. Literally, you have no, I remember I did a com like commercial, a uh, national commercial, and the reason why I got it, the casting director said, is I look just like his ex-boyfriend. Literally, that's how I got the, the commercial. So, how many other guys went out for that audition and were like, why didn't I get this? That just shows you, okay, it's a dumb world and you have sometimes you have zero control and it has nothing to do with you. I don't overly, you know. Last question, what advice would you have for the young person growing up in a small farm town <laughs> somewhere in the world and parents are divorced to find their lane find the thing they love and have the kind of career that you've had i went to, into all this i would just say do 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 that if you're younger God, man you have a lot of room to go back to the starting line it's like playing red light green light when you get busted you got to go back to the line you're you're coming out of the gate first off in those small towns it's amazing by the way how many roads lead out of that town you, you got to remember that. But you have so much room to mess up. You have so much room to go for these two years. Man, I'm going to try this. And then this year, I'm going to try this. And then this, because your, your starting point to start all over again isn't that far away. And just the, the older you get, the more slack line you need to pull yourself back to the shore. And that's where it gets scary. So I, I, would, I would F up as much as possible. Not, not as a person, but just trying trying new stuff and just trying there was never i started doing stand-up at like i said when lucille pushed me i never thought of it as a career and i never thought i would do it 25 26 27 years later um just because i just always did it just because i enjoyed doing it and i never you know i never had a crazy master plan now it's now it's turned into a business you know there's a little bit of you want to have things but at first i just did it because i really really enjoyed it I, I would say make friends with the fight is my biggest thing. There's going to be a lot of things that just suck along the way. And when it does, make friends with it. You knew that going in. You go into a knife fight, even if you win the knife fight, you know you're going to get, you're going to get sliced or you know you're going to get punched in the face and it's going to sting. So you have to make friends with that. 
and accept that as part of all of that's going on. So just make friends with that. John Heffron, like aspirin. <laughs> this was awesome, man. This was a hundred mile an hour fastball <laughs> down the middle, buddy. This was incredible. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I've always enjoyed the podcast. And then now again, I'm getting closer and closer to that cool guy group. You do deserve to be here and you do deserve to tell your story and you have a great story and it's very inspirational and I'm very thankful. I appreciate you having me. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on a review by Adam Chudwin, September 26, 2015. Title reads, Awesome, five stars. And it reads, knowledge is power, and the amount of knowledge and wisdom you get from listening to this podcast is amazing. A must-listen for anybody in Hollywood. Great stories and motivation to keep pushing. Thank you so much, Adam. I appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.